So on this week's Game Mastery, we're going to be talking about game systems and whether they matter for what game you're playing or whether the game you're playing matters to what system you're using. And as always, I'm Steve. I'm Andrew. I'm Mark. And today we are joined by our friend Jay, who is a longtime game player and also a DM. And he's been dipping his toes over the past, oh, what, year and year and a half, going on a year and a half coming up? Year and a half. Into Roll20 and doing the whole distance RPGing before it was cool, before the pandemic made it cool. That sounds terrible, but <laughs> that's kind of what's happened, actually. And when we were talking back and forth in messages, Jay brought up something interesting that I hadn't thought about. And that was from the start of the podcast. We never actually sat down and defined what a role-playing game is. We didn't talk about what a role-playing game is or how people think about them and what's required for a role-playing game or anything like that. And it kind of bugged me a little bit, Jay, that you brought this up. I'm going to be honest, all right? Because usually when it comes to instructions, I try to be pretty thorough. And in this particular case, I think I just jettisoned that whole concept from the beginning because it was such a a strange rush and 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 very chaotic to get the podcast out initially. And so the first episode wasn't the first episode we recorded, for instance. And so we didn't do that. But, you know, you have a wealth of game knowledge, not just role-playing games, but you're <laughs> you're probably the biggest board gamer that I know as far as what you've touched on, you know, during your life. And so I'll put you on the spot. I'll reverse it back. If you had to define a role-playing game, how would you define it? Well, I think there's definitely a spectrum of what you define as a role-playing game. First, you have to think, there's, like, what is a game to begin with? Is a game a competition? Is a game more than one person and then you have to go one step further and what is a role-playing game is a role-playing game tea party with your daughter you're both assuming roles is that a role-playing game or is that a role-playing experience then you get all the way up to you guys are pretty D centric and that's very you know a very defined role-playing game there's manuals and there's rules and there's a code of ethics at least at least you guys like to talk about the code of ethics of your personal groups or whatnot so i and, and everywhere in between i'm like if you play monopoly and uh, are you role-playing a business tycoon if you're playing risk are you role-playing a general i mean you can you can all set the risk table up put your general hats on and go to town but most people don't do that so it's more of a mechanical activity but when you're talking about an actual role-playing game there is certain expectations that a gamers have b role players have and c the general populace who watches um tv have and everything everything in between that's that's good 
That's good. I I usually get a little frustrated by the portrayals of role-playing games in popular culture on TV shows. And every once in a while, something comes around that surprises me and makes me feel good about it. For me, even though I haven't watched the entire series, that little bit that they did in the community, if you've seen that, I... I I was going to bring that up. That was an excellent episode. Excellent episode. Oh, my God. That was wonderful. (laughs) But they've taken that episode down now because of the drow roleplay. Yes. Or cosplay. And that is, that is, in in some ways, I find that astonishing. And in some ways, I find it completely legit. It's, it's a really tough call in some ways. But as a role player, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of with the main role playing community. And they're like, what? What do you mean? It's still uh, on the internet. So it's never gone. It's never gone. And... Places like Netflix, I can see why they do it, and they have to err on the side of caution, and they have to err on the side of normal people who don't understand what a drow is. Right. Right. So, okay, we're, we're, we're speaking about a, a Dungeons & Dragons system at the moment, and drow, do you say drow or drow? Do people say drow? Ow. Well, I've never heard drill. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I've heard it, especially people who are English. I've heard dro, you know, and I was like, what? Dro? No kidding. So, but drow, that, that is something that is... On this podcast, very... we say it like American. American. <laughs> In American, it's dro, drow. See, it's I messed drow. it up even. Now that it's in my head, it's in my head. It's data and data. It's that whole confusion thing over again that Patrick Stewart foisted on us. But that's a that's a whole other linguistics issue. So you have elements that are specific to the settings in games. And, you know, the main the main question for this episode is does it really matter what system you want to play for a given setting? You know, it's which influences the other more. Can you cross the streams? You know, in your case, Andrew, let me ask you, have you ever played in a game where you've played something other than what the manual wanted you to do? He's got his thinking pose. I don't think so. <laughs> Going back over 30 years of <laughs> click, 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 click. Okay. How about you, Mark? Depends on what you mean. Are you talking about setting that it, that it wasn't for the setting or have I right. ever hacked the hell out of games? Cause, well, cause I don't know that I've ever done it in a, a setting that it wasn't built for unless you count a, generical role-playing game system. Like but GURPS. if you're talking about have I mm. severely edited, say, Dungeons & Dragons to do what I want it to do, yes, I've done that many times. Okay. So how about you, Jay? Do you always play the same setting and system together? No, no. There's definitely some weird crossovers, but there's a lot of published material that does those crossovers for you. 
Like right now, one of the D&D campaigns we're playing now, he took us into 5e, but spell jammered it. So we got our boats and we got our our space and our gravity wells. And so I don't know if you count that as a crossover since spell jammer was a official D&D variant at some point. I, uh, I never got to play spell jammer, but maybe Andrew did. I just recently got the spy game, which is a skin on 5e for an espionage role-playing game it's just being printed i was on the kickstarter but i've got the copies i haven't done anything with it yet but you all have at least had experience as far as mark goes with modifying systems to match his particular needs and setting and jay you've played in a campaign where they are bringing in other elements of a sister system, a sister setting, using basically the same system. When I was in high school, we played an anything campaign, and it was a nightmare because we had a character in the Marvel system, we had a guy piloting a mech from Battletech, we had a wizard, and we had this guy who played the closest thing is like a tiefling, and it was something out of Rollmaster. And what we tried to do was we tried to, in this multiverse setting, when it came time to go into combat and do those kinds of things, skill checks and whatnot, we tried to use the individual systems and kind of play it like a little shard shooting off from the story, it was untenable. And we we tried, we tried many, many sessions, and it was just, it sounded really cool. I it think sounded the, really cool. I think the only way to do that is to do a burning wheel on it, where you both just roll a single combat check, and the winner gets what they want, and the loser doesn't. Interesting. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You say burning wheel, mm -hmm. and I'm not familiar with that particular phrase in this context. Help it is me. a role-playing game, and it has several unique mechanics, and that is one of them. Another one is they – I haven't played it, but they have a specific way of generating characters. Everything in that system, as I understand it, is overly detailed, but they have a lot of ways to bypass the complexity if you want to. And one of those is that you just simply roll the relevant combat checks against each other and the winner gets what they want and the loser doesn't. So that's the only way I could imagine making a combat like that work. Interesting. Well, let's let's look at it this way then. Let's let's go for a minute and talk about the mechanics of the particular gaming system that we like the most and why. And so, Jay, I'm going to lead with you on this. What is your favorite role-playing game system? And is there something particular about the mechanics that draws you to it? I think I'm going to go with Shadowrun on that one. Anybody's You're there? a Shadowrun guy, uh, really? We've been playing Shadowrun oh. since first edition. But yeah, I like I like the mechanics damned. of attacking and the defender pushing off the damage. Uh, like in D and D, you have your hit points, 
and you just get whacked until you drop. In the Shadowrun, it's more of a contest of, of character A and character B, whether you're getting shot at or attacked. You're rolling your you're rolling your combat pool to dodge and weave, and you're just like, oh, I need this many successes, and there's a lot of high-tension moments when you see that you know, the troll with the combat axe coming at you and you're trying to get out of the way, or there's a lot of... You feel more agency than just a minotaur charging you and you you have your passive damage. Right, right. I, I understand that. I I never got to play Shadowrun. I knew a bunch of guys who did. But then FASA came out with Earth Dawn, yes. which was, yeah. And Earth Dawn had mechanics for armor and damage absorption and things like that that I, I just adored, but I couldn't get anybody to play it with me. So, all right. Hold on to that thought. Andrew, favorite system and what, are, what is a mechanic or something about the mechanics that you particularly like? I don't think I have a favorite system per se. I think that every game is just a simulation and certain simulations do a better job of focusing on <clears throat> every simulation focuses on something at the expense of something else. You it's always a trade-off. It you know, you might have the detailed combat with you know, body location targets and you know, defensive maneuvers. But that's at the sacrifice of story flow because you end up quickly getting into a in long, drawn – I mean, combats take forever in a system that is – adds more. the more detail you add, the slower the game flows. So depending if you're wanting to do a tactical kind of game and you've only got a few players, that would probably be great. But if you've got eight players and you're having – you know, several minutes for each player to resolve their combat. That's going to be difficult for everybody to. You're going to you're going to get people to check out. So I think that you know the size of your group is a factor. I think the purpose of the simulation is it to tell a story, is it to be, you know, to experience some good clever tactical maneuvers. Those are all. So I don't know that there's any one preferred system. So. There's my non-answer to your question. <laughs> Thanks for that. Mark, can you do me a solid and do a little better? And I get, no, not better, but can you give me a favorite or a mechanic? So actually probably not because right, I... Wait, wait, damn it I, to hell. I have oh, a love-hate okay. relationship with a lot of different games because so many of them provide things that I like. But then they, what they've mixed it with is not, it's not something that really does what I want it to, which is why I end up hacking systems all the time. So, but I guess I would say that as far as mechanics go, the most interesting system that I think brings a lot of the most new things to the table is Fate. Like, aspects in particular are a phenomenal take on role-playing systems and a different way to do it. Okay. I I explain a little bit more about the Fate system for people who don't know. So, Fate uses... So, it has an entirely different dice system. It uses Fudge Dice or Fate Dice, and they both have... And they'll have some sides that are pluses and minuses, and other sides that are blank. 
and you'll start out with your skill versus the skill of the check. And then if you roll, say, two pluses, because you always roll four dice, then you're then it moves yours two up the ladder. And if that beats the check, then that's the way you do it. I'm not actually a huge fan of the dice, but the aspects, the what they do is so you'll define a particular character element. For example, let's say you have a character that has, say, they have like an iron fist, right? So their arm got chopped off, they lost that, and they have an iron fist. And that would be your aspect that you would choose. You'd say that iron fist. And essentially what happens is every player has a pool of tokens. I forget exactly what they're called. They might just be fate tokens. And you can use those to use your iron hand in a situation where it might be beneficial. So say busting down a door or something like that. And then you will get fate tokens from the GM if they choose to invoke your aspect. So in that case, they would say, oh, you're trying to say open this lock. Well, you don't have the dexterity. So they'll use that and invoke that to do a penalty on them. And in return, you'll get some of these fate tokens that you can later use to punch somebody in the face really hard with your iron fist. And that they also use that for, say, wounds, right? So once you get wounded, you'll take an aspect of, you know, bruised ribs or whatever, and then that can get invoked against you and so forth. So it's really an entirely different take on sort of the mechanics. It's a lot more loose. And I do prefer cinematic systems in general, cinematic combats, because they tend to go faster. And I think that obsessing over the details gets in the way of the combat, if of the flow of the combat. But this is part of the love-hate relationship, where if you are going to go detail-oriented on the combat, then I think that that combat needs to at least be very entertaining which I think is what 4th edition of Dungeons & Dragons does really well. You go into that game, and the mini-game of the combat is not cinematic at all, but it is highly tactical and fun. So if you're going to do that, at least make it good and engaging, which I think 4th edition did. Andrew, you moved towards your microphone. Did you have a follow-up, or were you just positioning? I was thinking the, uh, the Fate system is also used by the Star Trek game, isn't it? There are several games based on it. I know the Dresden Files is the is a big one. There's also one Spirit of the Century that's based on the pulps. I am not sure of if it's been used for a Star Trek system, but it, it may well have been. And so if I understand the game the the mechanic is that different checks in have different numbers of required successes to succeed. So something that was difficult would require so many success die or whatever, so many points to be rolled. And the more sort of the way it works is let's say your skill in a check is two. All right. And the total that you need would be four. Right. So you'll roll your dice, your four fate dice. And if you were to roll two pluses, and that's what it equaled out to, then you would succeed on that check. If you rolled, say, a plus, a minus, and two blanks, 
then you're still left with your two check and you don't succeed. So it works like a ladder. And every single one of those steps on that ladder has a, you know, descriptive word. Like I think the hardest is like a legendary task right. and so forth. And so if you've suffered a penalty in the past by the DM imposing something against you, you may have banked some extra die that you could add. So if you normally had four die to roll, you could roll a couple extra die to make that two check if you failed. I don't remember exactly how it works, but you would get a bonus, some sort of bonus that would allow you to do that, yeah. I'm going to mention this because I'll go back and edit it out. Um, if you've known me long enough, you know that when I say certain things, I agonize over them. So my poor joking going into Mark about Andrew not really saying anything and Mark do me a solid and bring up an actual system was, of course, disingenuous because I love Andrew's answers. So... There I was deeply offended. <laughs> I knew you would be, you cold-hearted bastard. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh my god, that didn't come off right at all. I'm going to have to edit all that little ten seconds out because it sounded really bad, and I didn't mean it to sound bad. It sounded like pleasant poking fun to me, but uh, oh, okay, I'll go back and re-examine. Everybody's going to think but... that you're picking on me. Well. I'm so vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, the delicate flower of the Game Mastery group. Now, a side question, Jay. Have you gotten to play a flavor of Shadowrun in the past, say, five years? No. Well, we did oh. a one-off at Origins. Oh, really? Maybe two. 2016 or 17 we did uh -huh. when the catalyst was demoing the new fifth edition and right now the one of the mm -hmm. other gms in my group is working up a either a fifth or sixth edition we're not sure which yet so it's a, it's on the horizon but i haven't i haven't played any of the newer iterations i could probably make a second or mm -hmm. third edition character up right now just out of memory from how much we played it in the in the 90s. Oh, wow. Man, I'm envious of that. I, I never knew anybody. I never knew anybody who played. But I knew... That was that was one of the big... Probably the bit out of the big ones we did. I was probably in the big five, top five. We always came back to Shadowrun. We had multiple GMs, so someone was always running it. Huh. And always from a different perspective, so... Now, when, when you played in these Shadowrun games, did they stick to the setting... Well, that's what part of the magic of Shadowrun is you can do whatever, almost whatever setting you want, since it's a technology, technology, blah, 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 technology setting with magic. So you could go out into the wilds of Oregon and do a magic centered adventure, or you could stay into the, 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 in Seattle and do corporate espionage. You could go to Chicago, which was walled off and was haunted by evil spirits. I mean, so whatever the DM wanted for that particular campaign or even one-off, you could pretty much pull it off in Shadowrun. Do you want to go fight a dragon? Do you want to see the dragon run for mayor of Seattle? Either one was fine. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that it allowed <laughs> such breadth. I, I didn't know. I didn't know. Well, I, there, I just well, yeah, had it's, this... a, it's a cyberware universe, but magic was reborn. 
So you have street mages and techno mages and mages that pump their their magic back into their body and become physical adepts or, you know, basically ninjas. But then you have your guys with, with your Keanu Reeves guys with cyberware and claws and wired reflexes, the whole gamut, the... The drivers who can become one with their cars and control the drone armies. You have the deckers that go inside the computer and operate. And they only ha- almost always have like a little mini adventure while the other people are going. They're fighting the, the corporate ISIS and trying to, to do the turn the cameras off as you break into the arcologies. And it's it's a whole gamut. And there's the mages can go into astral space and run astral cover for the meat people going in. So whatever really the, the how the party is made up and how the DM wants to, or GM, I guess, wants to run it is how it goes. I, I, I feel a little bit of disappointment that I didn't get to play this growing up or, or I, I'm, I, didn't, I didn't know it had that much. I knew the basic setting, but I guess not having played it or known anyone who played it, I didn't know that it had the capability to be so varied. And maybe that, you know, does the system for Shadowrun, is there something about that that makes it particularly adept at being able to handle that kind of variability? Is there is there something about it you think that... Oh, it's... Yeah, yeah. It's a completely D6 system. And almost always you're rolling your skill in number of D6s, looking for a target number and opposing the other person's target number. So if like someone was taking a swing at you, they would roll their their combat skill in D6s and say that's eight. So they'd roll eight dice and looking for uh, a certain target number. You know, like the base was beat four, then you can go up and down depending on, you know, situational modifiers. Then how many successes they have against you, then you would roll your combat pool, which you have a finite amount, so you don't, you know, you can't spend it all. Then whatever gets through, then you would roll your body to push off the damage. So there was always some measure of one-on-one, mono-mono button heads. Now, if that's a mage casting a spell at you, they're rolling their, their casting skill plus whatever level of spells. If it's a, a rigger with a, with a machine gun on a motorcycle, they're rolling their, their autopilots and the machine gun's damage and et cetera, et cetera. So it all kind of boils down into a big handful of D6s versus another big handful of D6s. But there's, an, there's a finite supply, so you're making choices. You know, do I avoid the light machine gun coming at me because it's big and nasty knowing that there's a combat mage going to fireball me here and at the end of the round or that kind of thing there's a lot of trade-offs and there's a lot of you know juggling of things huh i I, i've become a big fan of opposed role systems recently the i don't know the it seems like the star wars role-playing game has an opposed role you know built in but it's very for me, very complicated. Well, it definitely can go off the rails quick. It's based off the Genesis system, and I believe that the, actually the Genesis system came out ap- after that. So the Genesis system is more like a refined universal rule set for oh. like the, the Star Wars role-playing game. Oh, okay. Okay. So, you know, I've got, I've got, in, the, got in the notes... You know, things that we've already talked about. But it it's interesting. I thought that 
maybe there'd be more experience about using other settings with other systems and other systems with other settings. Uh, because that was, I don't know, something I was so interested in. I mean, I, I, I tried to integrate Magic, the card game, into D&D, you know, where if you were a wizard, you had a little 40-card deck, and you would play your deck against the other wizard, you know, if it was magical combat, or if you were, you know, playing against a fighter, you actually used the deck. That never worked out right. Well, there was too too much variability. See, but I've incorporated things like using a Savage Worlds-style initiative system with Dungeons & Dragons, for example. Savage Worlds, it, that's you, the one that has, like, one sheet for your character, right? It's pretty simple for your character building? Well, specifically with the initiative system, you use cards, like a regular deck of poker cards. And oh. so you would, I believe in Savage Worlds, you have a stat, and every person gets a certain number of poker cards, and then that determines initiative, and I ported that into Dungeons and Dragons for the initiative system. So you would get dealt a certain number and you could choose when to take your initiative based on the number you had that was based on the decks. Oh, I like that. I do too. I, That's why I did it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. That's fine. That's fine. So I... So to say that I, I haven't merged systems like that is like I have mechanically... Just not for setting, right. because for me, and this is one reason why I've never said, even tried my hand at DMing Shadowrun or World of Darkness. Like, I would love to play either one of those games, but I don't want to DM them because for me, I got to make my own world. If I don't, then my heart can't be in it. Well, as a side DM question there, Jay, do you, do you build your own world more or play an established world more. I usually take established worlds and bastardize them. If that makes nice. sense. I'll, I mean, I'll take the frame. I'll, I like, I like, oh, yeah. I like published modules, but then ripping out chunks, rearranging chunks and adding chunks. Cause I like, I like the framework mm -hmm. of the plot twists and turns, but then certain encounters or certain ways the, the, the adventure is going, I like to twist around. So kind of make my own, but I like to start out with a, like a framework or, or at least a kernel of an idea from somebody else. Now, I'm partially, my, I don't trust my own imaginations, at least without guidance. I don't trust my ability to comprehend other people's stuff. So, so that's... Well, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of from the camp that restrictions make people more creative. I'll, I'll agree with restrictions breed creativity in order to become something good. I've noticed a lot in completely open worlds, a lot of people will just kind of stand and stare. But if you have not necessarily, not necessarily rails, but at least a path with forking branches, things can things are easier for me. That's one of the my other... So, like I was talking about a love-hate relationship. For example, one thing I don't particularly care for about the fate system is that you pretty much to make it work... The players have to be proactive, which we've talked about before, that fate encourages you to play that way. But it, the system almost doesn't work if the players are inexperienced, because they really need to be driving the plot and moving it forward. And this is also, I guess, how systems can influence the game. 
And so basically I was just going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Andrew? Yeah, I was going to ask, how does the game system change your DM style? If you had sort of the same plot line, the same setting, if you played with one game system, would you expect the game to play out differently than if you used a different game system? Absolutely. I disagree. (laughs) Ah, yes. I mean, are we talking like oh. you 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 have one plot? You take the same party, same personalities through that plot in one system, then the same personalities in another system. As, as like almost like a double blind experiment is what we're talking about. I'm trying to wrap my brain around. Yeah, it. just a, well, just contrasting the two styles to see if the or contrasting the two systems to see if it affects the flow of the game, the the way you DM in general. Are you more sandboxy, less railroady, more railroady, less sandboxy? As an example, there may be other variations, you know, for DM style. How does that change? My limited experience, I find that I was going to say my limited experience is that DMs force a personality more more wraps the system around their their own psyche as opposed to the system conforming the dm if that makes sense i think that various systems very much influence how the game goes and the reason is okay so let's go ahead and we'll take a game say D, where whenever you sit down for a game at D, typically what your players are going to expect is that the gm is going to describe things and then they act In Fate, you have to play it where the GM is more reactive. So that has to change your thing. I'm not your thing. That has to change the way that you are GMing. And if you're playing in... Likewise, if you're playing in a game like Apocalypse World or something where there's the pre-generated characters and the game is all about how it's played. Like where... God, it's been a while since I read this book, but essentially I believe it's like there's like no take backsies. It's supposed to be like fast moving. And I believe that like with in your situation with OVA, where OVA combats, people die very quickly. It's very instantaneous. The combats are very quick. That is going to create a vastly different flow than if you are playing a game where combat is more detail oriented and it slows to a grinding halt sort of. So it, the system really matters. Well, what is the end result? The end result is the experience, let's, right? Let's say, have you watched the movie Kelly's Heroes? We know that we all know the plot of Kelly's Heroes. <laughs> now, say you ran the plot of Kelly's Heroes through D, with a D and D system, then the plot of Kelly's Heroes through the Apocalypse World system. How how different do you think the experiences would be? I don't know. I. I at least the end result. I mean, like, like when when everybody's sitting around the table at the end of the night, how how different do you think the like the recap conversation or the decompressed comp the, the decom? Can't think of the word, but the debrief. Yeah, the after hours. Yeah. the debrief. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it probably highly depends on the players and their preference for particular styles, because some people for example, would really want to get into a 
tactical combat situation where that breaks down. And other people would much rather see the plot move forward faster and almost hand wave combat to an extent. They just kind of want to experience it. So I would suspect that different players would have different reactions at the end of the game. Now, if you're a good GM, ideally, they would both be positive, but actually what happened and the way it flowed and what people enjoyed and didn't would probably be quite different. I'm sitting here digesting what you all are saying. <laughs> I'm like, all right, okay. I, a, As you all were talking, I wrote down uh, system versus group size, system versus experience, system versus play style. What Andrew was saying about detail equals complexity. What Jay said early on about a role-playing experience versus a role-playing game. And thinking about all of these points, I I think that maybe maybe what we were talking about initially was we were going up the wrong trail. We're 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 climbing the same mountain that we were before, but we we just went on the wrong trail. And you know, the fact is that these systems do matter based on what we're talking about. And the settings do matter. And the players matter and the DM matters. So we've got this collection of ingredients that go into this soup. And kind of a kernel in the back of my mind before we started was thinking back to that old anything campaign. And, and God, do I know anybody who successfully you know, use this setting and that system or that system and that setting. And maybe that's too simple and kind of too juvenile to think you can boil it down that way. I, I, I don't know exactly, but let, let, me, let me ask you all based on, on these three main things, group size, experience, and play style. And play style, I can, I can split between play style and GMing style. And let, let's just let's just have you all name a system, okay? And, and we'll go down the line. One, two, three. If you had a large group of players, let's say six, six to nine, is there a particular system that you think that you're familiar with that would work best for that, Andrew? I don't know. I don't have that much experience outside of you know. D&D. &D. I mean, that's really my... So, okay. And that's good. That's good. So with D&D, &D, what is your cap on what you think can be effectively handled for an inexperienced large group? Or an inexperienced group? For an in inexperienced group. For an inexperienced group, I would keep it under five. For, in for an in for, I think for an experienced group with the right tools, you can easily handle nine. Okay, with the right tools, meaning something that helps with, like, Fantasy Ground or Roll20. Yeah, Fantasy Grounds or Roll20 that sort of, you know, have, you have a content manager or something that sort of keeps the flow going, a little bit of automation to the process, then you could easily handle nine. But I think for an inexperienced group and an inexperienced DM, I'm assuming if you're saying an inexperienced group, somebody that's just starting to play, you know, you get more than five 
and you're spending too much time looking up rules. But I think that's true for any RPG. I think that the no, no RPG is so lean that you can, that I'm aware of, that you can pick up the rules after just 30 minutes of breathing the synopsis and, and kind of run it. I mean, you, you need a little bit of time to, in, you know, you've got some investment there. Challenge accepted. Okay. <laughs> Jay, inexperienced group. Experienced DM, though? Small group. Let's say experienced DM, yes. Yes. For a large group, I, I haven't thought of the small group yet. For the large group, I'm going to go with Dread. If anybody's oh. played Dread before. It's a bare-bones role-playing game that is more of a storytelling game. And it requires mm -hmm. the players to buy in and kind of become their characters. And it also requires a GM to watch the players and provide story points and make sure that no one's just being a wallflower. But there's no uh -huh. dice and it's all storytelling. And at any time a role needs to be made, like a standard RPG role, you pull a block out of a Jenga tower. If the Jenga tower collapses, your character meets some kind of horrible end. Oh. So that's Holy so crap. as the game continues the, the tension ramps up as everybody's staring at this tower and kind of in the dm can focus the points on different people and as they come up with their plan to it's usually almost a horror trope do you know who did that game i believe was it was it the same guy that did cigarette girls because i don't know i don't know cigarette girls Cigarette Girls is like a one-page free thing on the on the web that it's basically the epitome of a bare bones system. <laughs> but it actually sounds like a really challenging role-playing game experience. But this <laughs> one's we're walking the line between a role-playing game and a storytelling game, or maybe even a drama exercise. Right. But that that could be a whole different right. episode. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that in a second, Jay. Mark. Large group, inexperienced players, experienced GM. Depends on how large you have. If you have large enough, then obviously you'd do one of those, like, you would do, say, Vampire, the Masquerade, but you'd do, the, like, the, the live action one where people do the uh, paper, rock, scissors instead of rolling dice and such. Right. Right. A little LARPing action. Okay. All sort right. of LARP. Kind of halfway between. All right. Vamping. Okay, no, that's, not, that's not exactly right, but there we go. All right, Andrew, I'm going to leave you off of this for this follow-up. But for a small group, lack of experience, first-time first time players, what would you use, and I'll ask you, Jay, what would you use to get people interested in playing a role-playing game? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Probably just go old school Dungeons and Dragons, I would think. Just because it's popular. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. As if if you need somebody with, you know, dungeon mastering skills. Now there's there's other alternatives, but for I mean that the Dungeons and Dragons, everybody's heard of it by the in this point. So And you can make a pretty bare bones D and D character, like you're the fighter with this, 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 and we go off. We do something like out of keep of the borderlands and go on. 
So for the inexperienced, but they're curious and they want to know what's going on, probably D&D. Before you drop them into the weird pool. Right. (laughs) Right. I wouldn't drop somebody off immediately and call a Cthulhu, for instance, if they had no experience. Although that might be fun. Actually, I've done that and it was fun. Have you? Really? (laughs) I have. I have. Oh, that's glorious. I love I love Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, and that's another Mark. one where you look at mm. systems different the same same plot with different systems. It's a very good case study because there's the Call of Cthulhu uh, 3.5 style, which is very pulpy, and the characters are shooting Cthulhu in the face with a shotgun. And there's also the super horror one that you know you're you have a minicule chance to survive, and everybody's going to be dead at the end. So that's a very good good case study of the same plot but very but then different systems within the same world and how the outcome would be very different i i went insane a lot in the old one yes uh, yes yes i mean just you you just had to just accept that that insanity and losing your character to the horrors was just going to happen we always made two characters so one character could always take a break Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like like one character is taking this adventure off, going to the hospital or going to the beach. We always had two characters at the beginning of the adventure. You picked which character you were taking and the oh. other got some kind of bonus as he had some downtime. Oh, well, that's a great idea. I have to mention that was that not too. my idea. Uh, it's a very uh, our GM at the time had that idea. And he would also what he would do is different campaigns. The next campaign would be the relatives of the previous previous oh. investigators you'd find your dad's journal your grandpa's journal so you do we did like an like a late 1800s and we did a 20s then we did like a 1950s and it was just the same family tree progressing through multiple campaigns it was very good oh, that's and very that's pretty awesome yeah that sounds fantastic wow we had a lot more time on our hands back then too oh yeah there, there's that <laughs> that's that's it's like it's like reading, you know, you're talking about D&D for the first time and you know that's good to get people into it. And I spent hours, sometimes daily, just reading the player's handbook and the dungeon master's guide and I could tell you, you know, that you know, they use the word oligarchy on page whatever of the dungeon master's guide and just all those little things. And yeah, a lot of things are much harder to invest time into nowadays. Mark, do you have a specific system, even if it's one that you've hacked, that you would take inexperienced players through specifically? I agree with Jay there. Probably D&D or, you know, it depends on how small the group is, but, you know, if you got, like, three people, then D&D Basics probably perfect. I can see that. Now, it it was interesting taking, you know, my childhood group through the open versatile anime system because they had virtually no experience with a thematic thematic game like that. The closest thing that they had was Traveler, and they, up until recently, didn't do the complex, detailed combat it was all very fuzzy but it wasn't like it was filled with you know a world of description and i i know for me that there's no way 
that I could have progressed them through the story the way I did for the four sessions that we played if I had been in a heavier system. If it had been D&D, or if it had been GURPS, if it had been anything like that with additional stats, and it wasn't just a D6-based opposing role system, I wouldn't have been able to take him through the story as fast as I did. And I know they don't think it was incredibly fast because I was describing geological features to them, but it was... It was faster than it would have been if we were checking tables. And that, that was one of the beefs that I had with Pathfinder. It's just a lot of tables and rolling. And I, Jay, do you play much Pathfinder? I've never Pathfindered. That's, that's, that's one of my gaps. If, if you play <laughs> and Mark, yeah. I've played a lot of 3-5. A lot of 3-5. Yeah. And okay. it's 3-5 adjacent from what I hear, but that's never... Right. When that was big and popular, that's kind of when we kind of went on hiatus for a while. Pathfinder, very definitely D&D adjacent, and they refine some things. They really do. Things like grappling rules, and there are all kinds of little things that are better in Pathfinder. But I just it got to the point I had to use a computer to have my character sheet to keep track of what states I was in and everything else. It might actually be perfectly fine to play now in a Fantasy Grounds interface, just like D&D is way, way less complicated for players when you take that heavy lifting off. But that brings up another thing. It's like, you know, the, the old teachers, when calculators started coming into schools, they were like, kids have calculators. You know, they're going to they're going to forget how to add and they're not going to be able to, you know, use a pencil and things like that. And I almost think they're right. It's it's really weird. It's taking your ability to know and replacing it with your ability to just play. I know that's a complete. Well, they also told us we'll never have a calculator on our person at all times. And now we all do. I mean, is right. the ability to know more valuable than the Ability to seek knowledge. <laughs> I mean, if you can know how to seek knowledge, you can find what you're looking for. If you don't know it, you don't know it. Right. My problem with Pathfinder was less that, and it was it was more that I, as the DM, want to know what my players can do, so that I can create correct challenges for them. Oh, I'm str I'm struggling with that right now. <laughs> with Pathfinder, the characters there's too much that they can do, and it's hard to know. Like for example, I remember I had this monk, and the monk like could like shoot arrows and bend the arrows around like obstacles and things like that, and run on ceilings. And I was like, this is just too high magic and stuff for me. Too high fantasy. <laughs> hmm. Andrew, you moved forward like three times and I totally didn't call on you. Is what you were going to say still in your head from like an hour ago? <laughs> it was only 15 minutes or so. But... Yeah, I, I think that it goes back to this notion that the all of these games are simulations. And 
the more detailed the simulation, the more, you know, the more you want it to be like real life or, you know, where the risk or whatever is the same or, you know, targeted hits or how, however much you add to the complexity to make it realer takes away from the flow. So the, the, that's inevitable. And it doesn't matter which system you use. If you add more rules, if you add more, if you do this, this is the outcome. If you do this, this is the outcome. More predictable outcomes, it increases the complexity. It decreases the flow. So at some point, every dungeon master, regardless of system, it seems to me, manages that trade-off. They don't use an optional rule or they do add it. It depends on how much complexity they want to build in, knowing that the complexities that they add are going to decrease the flow. If you've got players that are have long attention spans and enjoy the details of the fight sequence, then a detailed table-heavy system may be ideal for that group of players. If you've got players with a short attention span who, you know, whip out their phone or they start playing a video game while you're running the game because it's not their turn and they're not really following what's going on, then a game that relies heavily on tables and looking up stuff and, you know, that what we would consider the realism piece is not going to it's not going to fly. They're, they're going to check out. You're going to lose them for the next game. They're going to they're going to think back and say, yeah, I was playing another game. I was I'd already lost interest. So I think the danger or, you know, maybe one of the reasons, you know, I've seen this. And again, my experience is very limited to the D&D and a few offshoots from TSR back in the day. But the tendency is become for games to be a little more streamlined, a little less realistic. They're not even apologetic about that. They just say, look, this is, you know, designed to be sort of quick and dirty to get the story flowing. And I think a lot of that comes from playtesting lots of different audiences and realizing that attention spans are getting shorter across the board. And that if you're wanting to have a, they, they want to get to the next part of the story. They, they don't want to enjoy the minutia of the of the battle and it, it's going to depend on your table i agree we, we've often described the current D 5e as the video game version of dungeons and dragons just because the way it feels like it's really easy to bring the party back up to full health it's really easy to bring somebody who dropped down unless you have a total party kill but it's very and all the how all the skills and what work not it's very much a video game, at least emulates a a Skyrim experience versus something like 3.5 did, which was more granular. I agree with that. I, I particularly liked playing Call of Cthulhu recently because things were very much more fatal. You know, a stab mm. wound, for God's sakes, don't get shot by a gun. And... Yeah, good God. That's just we we had a character got a shotgun and it was like he might as well have had a tank. It's amazing. But you know, those those things, I I guess that you know, all of these systems have a setting kind of baked in. 
And really, it doesn't make a lot of sense, I believe, for the most part, to muddy the system and the setting unless you are, you know, aware enough to try and figure out what you're going to hack together. So, you know, a Mark situation where you take one element to use it in another system because there's something about it that you find that makes the gameplay more effective or flow better, but it doesn't impede the enjoyment or the knowledge, you know, that people need in order to have a good time. And, you know, my, my recent experience with this OVA system, because it is meant to be able to emulate basically any setting, I guess if I wanted to do something in a different setting, I would just use OVA again. Uh, unless it was something I wanted to do, like Dungeons & Dragons or Call of Cthulhu or something that was you know, more specific with a system that I liked that I thought the players could play. Damn it. Well, I think a big thing that is going on is that in a lot of the older systems where there were all these tables for all of these various things that could happen and specific results was that the creators did not trust DMs to do their job well. I think that a, the games now tend to let more... F they tend to allow more freedom for the GM to say that this happens and accept that that will be realistic or unrealistic or whatever. And I think that that's an important thing. You have to leave... Well, you don't have to, but I think the game benefits from at least that part of newer design. Yeah, I disagree. I think the I think that the reason the tables were there was because it gave because in the early days it was dungeon master versus player in a lot of ways. It was where I'm going to create this challenge for you. It's going to be kind of you're going to try to solve the puzzle, your characters are going to die and there was this and the tables gave the appearance of it being an objective game where I'm not, you know, this is what the table says. This is what the outcome is. And so having these predetermined outcomes based on these tables were constraints on the DM as far as being able to pull out the hand of God and say, well, this is what the outcome is. And so it, it made it seem more like the game was balanced between the DM and the players, especially for, you know, Funhouse Dungeons and things like that, which was, you know, kind of I agree, guy and I may have misspoken there to say the reason, but what I meant was that the effect is that the GM is given a lot more leeway. They leave a lot more things up to the GM, and that is the effect. I think you're entirely correct about the reasons why that originally occurred, but I think the effect is good. That and the designers who were designing the older games were more grocknards than liberal types or maybe they were more simulationist yes yes more more you can see that in like the wargaming community there's some very hyper realistic war games and there's some very fast and loose war games out there and both sides give stink eye to the other side <laughs> and that's kind of how rpgs evolved i mean they they they, they were very granular and they wanted to mimic 
or more of a simulation, as Andrew was saying, but it really limits flow unless you're super versed into the system. And it really turned a lot of people off, and that's why they're streamlining more now. And a more diverse audience is enjoying them, mostly because of the internet, because everybody can now freely exchange ideas instead of the weird, you know, back in the back of the high school and the chess club meets and it gets very grocknardy. <laughs> I come over yeah. a very small yeah, we, high school too, by the way. So the supplies were limited. The, the supp I'm embarrassed that I'm going to have to Google grocknard. It's 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 yeah, it's a very <laughs> hyper realistic style of wargaming. Like when you would play a World War II game, it's the Sherman S1 Mark IV versus the German S1 Mark V. Like one gets an extra plus one to do this one particular act action or I just made those terms up. Please don't Google this. But it's a very hyper realistic <laughs> <laughs> it's a very hyper realistic form of tabletop wargaming to the point where there's they don't even use it like miniatures. They're using little paper chits and there's hundreds and hundreds of little paper chits everywhere and it takes days and days and days to complete the game. And some people really, really love it. I have a stack of Avalon Hill and a few other like weird lesser known manufacturers downstairs that I am dying to eBay because I can't I'm not going to play them. I've, I've carried them around in some form or another for 25 years and they're just so damn complex. I mean, they really are. I found I mean, this. I yeah. found this board game for like $2 somewhat recently, a few years back at the, like the Salvation Army. And it was a very, very intense simulationist game of like basically the Roman Empire. It was more of a simulation than a game. Yeah. And and if you look at the, the tables in the original through second edition GM's guides, it, that granularity that Jay briefly mentioned is is there. It's, I oh I'm I'm going into a town. How big is it? Roll on the table. You know how many peasants are there? Roll on the table. How many? And it it gave you the opportunity to kind of pilot your environment through tables, and I it had it had to be that way. It really had to be that way. The way the way it outgrowthed from outgrew outgrowthed. Wow, that is that is. There was an outgrowth. Yeah, somebody's going to take my English degree away from me. So, yeah, it 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 had to be that way based on the games that they were playing. That, you know, created what we have now. But I do I do believe that fifth edition and fourth edition of Dungeons and Dragons, I don't like the fact that it's so life friendly for the players. I think I think that's a the problem I have with it. I, I would rather it be more final and that death meant more because it seems odd to me that it doesn't. I mean it it really doesn't. It's like I mean, a save that's, game. that's easy to hack. Yeah. 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 We could just, you know, you're down, you're down and right. re-roll. That'd be an easy, right. easy With replacement. With a healing aspect. I'm thinking about, well, I'm just thinking about how many 
characters we would be out in our Wednesday night game if that was. I know we would have. We've had a oh, lot of I people know. hit zero. I know. For me, it also depends on the enemies. So, for example, I like oozes because one of the things that I can highly justify with oozes is they're out there to eat. They aren't there to, you know, take down people in combat. So whenever somebody's down, they just start eating them. <laughs> like, that's it. So, like, they don't stop hitting them. They don't get these death-saving throws. They're going to just get attacked until they die. I think the death mechanic is if the player is going to re-roll another clone or another character that's going to essentially fulfill the same role as the previous character, then there's really no point in killing it off. Has anybody here played the, anybody here played Paranoia? The game, the <laughs> game, the game where you made six clones of your original character because the, the, the death rate was so high. It was a oh, more yeah. comic relief um, game, but so you didn't care when you died. Yeah. You just kept bringing your same clone, just marching, marching, marching in. So, yeah, that's a very. I, I think it recently made a comeback, but I have not got the new edition. I I saw that a few years back. They did that, and I was like, really? <laughs> wow. Yeah, it, it, it's a good time if you want frenetic, frantic, you know, kind of real quick. That would be a good one for an inexperienced, inexperienced party members. Actually, yeah, that would because the, the, the story is very relatable. A really good idea. Yeah, and the stats are pretty easy. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Well, actually, that's that's a pretty good suggestion to end on. Unless Jay, you have something else you'd like to bring up. I can't think of anything. Leave that for the guest. Mark, anything? If you only play D&D, try other systems. There's a lot more out there. Absolutely. That's true. As as evidenced by Jay's wall behind him of many colored, wonderful things. You don't even have to buy them to play them. Just buy them to read them for fun. <laughs> I have a stack of yeah, role-playing right. games. I, I do that. <laughs> yeah, I have, a sta- I, I have a stack of role-playing games. That I've read the rules and then kind of meshed them around my head, but never actually unleashed them on... So Jay, is there a gaming lo- is there a gaming location? Is there a game store, a comic store, someplace that you haunt that you or are most of your games in the in the dining room kind of thing? Or do you have a special place where you came? Half and half. Well, back, back when we get back to normal, Four Horsemen is 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 the place to go. Usually, I do have a pretty nice dining room set up though. But we are house shopping, so hopefully there will be a game room in my future. But we do we do try to have a you know, once all the caveats, we do try to have a, a weekly. See, the board, our board game group kind of evolved from all the role playing people. Our our core group fragmented, and now we have a board game group with ten people or so. Because when you play a board game, different people can show up every week, and you can still have a good time. And if it's a role playing group, if certain characters are missing, it falls apart pretty quick suddenly got ghosted and whatnot. So that's how the board games came about. But now we got internets. We got a we got a once once weekly well, usually for me every other week, but that's life. Okay, side question. Board game recommendation. What's your favorite oh, board geez. game? 
<laughs> I know, I know. Out of the, you know, the however many hundred you have, if you had to pick one, uh, Desert can, Island. You can't pick one. You can't pick one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like picking your okay, favorite kid. How about this? All right. How about this? Over the past, let's say the last year that you were able to have people at your house to play board games. What was the one board game that kind of stood out to everybody as a favorite? How about that? Which which board game did you have to replace? <laughs> From where? Let's let me mention two. One for small groups, uh, precisely three people. There's a three person board game called Three Kingdoms Redux. It's designed for three people. It's incredibly balanced on a razor's edge. It kind of mimics the Three Kingdoms period of ancient China, which is Kind of fantasy, kind of not, but it is very engaging, and it has everybody staring and calculating and doing its thing. The other one is for a large group, four, four to eight, and that's called Sidereal Confluence. Then there's a bunch of other words at the end, and it is a pure negotiation game where there's... Uh, emphasis on trading like you're not making bad deals it's not like you're taking someone to the cleaners like you're trading a good deal for a good deal so everybody's happy there's also ramifications for reneging on deals so there's none of that diplomacy backstabbing and it's basically a three-hour i'll give you this for this for this for this then everybody pauses they run their machinery and rinse and repeat and if that sounds if either of those games sounds interested i would happily teach once we can breathe each other's spit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My recommendation would be pandemic. Right. That's <laughs> we not not no, no, not actually just for the, the, the theme now, just like cause in general, like no matter what games I try and play, we end up wearing the hell out of pandemic. For the best role, for the best board game experience, Pandemic Legacy Season One, you play at twelve oh to twenty-four God, town, yes. and it might be probably the best board game experience for the money a person can have. And Steve, for your family, it would be yes. We spent three straight days playing it. We were snowed in for for the end and just played it straight. You get all the magic of roleplay leveling up. You get the same character who gets better, and they also get scars. It's it's very much a cooperative roleplay hybrid DMless adventure that goes probably about sixteen games, depending on how many games you lose. And there's new surprises. Pandemic. There's secret. There's stickers. The board changes as you play. Boxes open and things spill out onto the board. Pandemic Legacy. There's three of them. Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Play it. Okay. Spend your 60 bucks on it. You will get way more than that. If you take the family to the movie, you're spending 60 bucks. Spend 60 bucks here, you that... get 40 hours of family entertainment. I wow. just want to highly second that incredible <laughs> experience. It's, it's, but then you, when you're done, you throw it away. You're not going to play it ever again. It's okay. It's okay. Wait a minute. Just let me. Just let me. This. This sounds like the pandemic version of Gloomhaven. It is. It. it, uh, it, it this. This is the oh. second one. There was. There was the designer of Pandemic Legacy Season One designed one other legacy game, which was Legacy Risk. 
Then once that took off, that's when the Gloomhavens oh. and the the Legacy Clank, and that's when the Legacy Boom really hit. Was this pandemic? And for my money, it's still the king. I'll be damned. Agreed. Okay. Point point taken. It will be on my Amazon wish list for at some point in the coming months. That's fantastic. It is. Yay! Yay. All right. Well, thank you, Jay, for joining us. Sure. I'm sorry it ran a little late. That's fine. But uh, but No, absolutely. Thank you. I hope it wasn't too terrible. You were great. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah, this, this was good. It was great. You're fantastic. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us on Game Mastery. You can always check us out on anchor.fm slash game mastery or follow us on Twitter at mastery underscore game, Instagram at Game Mastery Podcast, or Facebook and YouTube at Game Mastery. If you'd like to ask us a question or get some follow-up information, maybe submit a topic for the show, please email us at rpg.gamemastery at gmail.com. And we'll be back next week for more information to make your games better and to make you a better Game Master.